0: Good morning. Good morning. I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. This morning we'll be talking about the subject of worship. It's the last message in the New Year's series that we've been in, Pillars of the Christian Life. Next week the plan is to resume in the Gospel of John, where we left off in November, and it's a subject that also, a passage that also deals with the subject of worship providentially. So we'll be in that uh, theme for the next couple of weeks. Uh, reminder we do have the fellowship meal the uh, soup and sandwich meal after the service this morning so I'd love to see everybody uh, there it'll be a great time and uh, and after the last song I'm going to close this this morning in a benediction um, would you pray with me Our Heavenly Father we thank you so much for this day and Lord, we thank you for your great name that is glorified throughout the, throughout the world and we've seen and heard some incredible stories this morning through Sunday School and um, or through this presentation. Lord, we, we glorify you for that. Lord, and, and may that work continue to go on, and may you use us to be part of that. Lord, I pray for our time this morning as we study in your word, that we may worship you and delight in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 11. As we talk about worship this morning, in one sense, all of life is worship. Because all of life can be worshipped full to the Lord. And certainly, it's our hope that everything that we do in life is to the glory of God. However, this morning, we are more specifically talking about worship in the context of the life of the church. A mistake that too many churches in America have made is that we've tied consumerism into the church. Our society has made church a product. If you go to a restaurant or a store or an online retail market, it's all about you. It's all about your tastes, what you like and want. They cater to you. And the entire goal is to serve you and give you what you want and get your business. And sadly, this attitude, this marketing attitude, has come into the church in America. We've turned parishioners into customers and unfortunately too often believe that the customer is always right and cater to that. We've added bells and whistles to try to make worship hip or fun. I've used examples like these before, but there are churches who do entire sermon series based around Disney movie themes or popular culture references or country songs. Pastors who... Have ridden in a church on a motorcycle or driven into the sanctuary in a new car. I saw one pastor who was using some sort of harness apparatus to, like he was Mary Poppins, above the congregation. (laughs) Pastors who wear costumes during Advent sermons. I saw one pastor dressed like Han Solo for a Star Wars themed service. Churches who have brought in tattoo artists had giveaways where they give away. Rifles, sermon series titled things like Fifty Shades of Grace, pandering to the culture, all of it giving people what they want. In the process, our society has traded authentic worship of the Lord for gimmicks and shallow theology. Sometimes people hold their noses and know that it's not really a very good approach to worship, but justify this attitude in church as a means to an end because as long as it gets people in the doors, that's what matters. But the issue is that our theology of worship impacts our theology of everything else. And worship should not primarily be about asking people what they want and catering to that, It's looking at what God wants and how God desires to be worshipped and worshipping him in accordance with that. And so when we have worship that sets aside the reverence for God at the altar of being cool, when we treat the Bible like it's a self-help book to give us a few good moral lessons instead of the eternal word of God, which reveals his will, righteousness, and gospel, When we sing songs that focus around catchy choruses and the talent of the musicians. Over songs which point us to God and his goodness and glory. When we treat communion like it's a chore that we have to do. Rather than participating in a sacrament that was ordained by the Lord Jesus himself. When we copy what the rest of the secular world does to impress people. We train people in the church that God exists for us and that his church exists to entertain us. Your theology of worship impacts your theology of everything else. And that's true because we worship before we do theology. What do I mean? You worship before. Before you do theology. It's similar to how you crawl before you walk. Before you begin to understand the grace of Christ. Before you begin to understand his death and resurrection and the meaning of that. Before you begin to grasp complicated doctrines like the Trinity or the two natures of Christ or the incarnation of Christ. Before you do those things, you worship. You sing to God. You hear sermons. You see the worship service. And so the manner of worship itself has an, an impact on training us of how we should see God. We worship before we formally do theology. In the same way that you don't learn a bunch of grammar rules, what a noun, an adjective is, how to construct a sentence, when to use a comma. You don't learn all those things and go, okay. Now I'm going to start talking. No, you start talking first and then learn that stuff afterwards. Our theology of worship impacts our theology of everything because it impacts how we view God, how we view his word, and the place that we give the gospel. Certainly at this church, our goal is to have worship that is centered around the gospel, the faithful preaching of the word, obedience to the sacraments which Christ has ordained and music which points us to God. The ingredients in worship are simple but no less profound because when worship is done right it is meant to point us to God who he is and his goodness and gospel. Real, authentic worship of the living God is supposed to be awesome and powerful but not because of the little gimmicks that we attach to it. Not because of creative people concocting ways to make church especially dramatic or emotional or an impressive spectacle. It's because God himself is good and is worthy of praise. The best way to worship, the best way to worship God is to worship him in the way that he has prescribed It's not a punishment. It must also be understood that when we worship God, it's not because God needs our worship. God is fully self-sufficient, self-existent, whole and holy. Our worship does not boost his self-esteem. But at the same time, the Bible tells us that God delights in our worship. Psalm 147, 11 says, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Worship is fulfilling part of the purpose for why we were created because there is no ultimate source of joy and meaning aside from knowing God. No ultimate source of joy and meaning. No better response to the knowledge of God and his majesty and salvation than, than to come to him and worship. It is for our own good and edification that we come to God and worship God as he has deemed for us to do. One thing that is seen time and again throughout the Bible is that God is not a God who we approach in any way we want because the Lord is awesome and holy. And so today we will look at a familiar passage in the Bible, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. And we will specifically be looking at the first four of those commandments. Because the first four commandments all get get at our relationship to God. But they all also have implications for how we worship the Lord. In the worship documentary, Spirit and Truth... They summarize these commands as pointing us to the object of our worship, the manner of our worship, the attitude of our worship, and the time of our worship. The Ten Commandments come at a time shortly after the Israelites had been freed from slavery in Egypt. They had been redeemed from slavery because they were the people of God and to fulfill the covenant that the Lord had made with Abraham. And for God's purpose of bringing his people into the land that he had promised. The Ten Commandments are given very early in the Israelite journey to the promised land. They had just miraculously been freed from slavery. These commands are the basis of the law of God. They're the basis of Christian morality. And they're the basis of the covenant that the Lord made with Moses. Again, the first four commandments deal with our relationship to God, but impacts how we view worship. And with that, we'll jump right in this morning. First commandment, Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. As we said, the first commandment gets at the object of our worship. God points to himself as the one who brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt. We can worship the Lord because he has forgiven us of our sins through the work of Jesus on the cross. He has rescued rescued us from the slavery of sin and brought us to freedom in Christ. The first commandment shows us that God does not tolerate competition in our hearts, that he must be number one. Psalm 29, 2 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. I realize that worshiping the figures of other religions, it's not necessarily a big temptation for us here today. But that does not make this commandment any more antiquated or any less relevant within the church. Because the object of our worship is ultimately the thing that is most precious to us, and we oftentimes create our own idols. We can give the right answer in church and say that the Lord is most important, but is that really true for you? Is that true with how you actually live your life and view the world? Is that really your hope, your delight, your meaning? Is that really where your purpose is? For some people, their ultimate hope is in money. That's what they look to for security. That's what makes them feel safe. That's what they're really working for. But if you worship money, you'll never feel like you have enough. For some people, we worship our our body and our appearance, our health and well-being fitness and nutrition, how good we look. But our bodies are still frail and easily broken. And no matter how long we live, our bodies will ultimately fail us. And beauty fades. For some of us, we make an idol of our spouse. We have all of these areas of imperfection, and we look to our spouse as someone who can help us to fulfill our needs. But that person is just as messed up and selfish and sinful as you are. A spouse is meant to be a partner, not a savior. For some of us, we make idols of our kids. We look at having good kids as the key to happiness. But if we make them our ultimate source of hope and joy, they will either let us down by failing to live up to unrealistic and unfair expectations, or we will lower our expectations for them, divorced from reality, and view the world, and them, as if they're capable of doing no wrong. And we could go on and on about the other idols that we make. People make idols of control, of fame, of how we're perceived, of learning, of power, of leisure. Those all make very bad gods. Yet, we so often treat those things and live... As though those are the things that matter most in our lives. They matter, but they don't matter most. Only an all powerful, almighty, perfect, perfectly loving God is worthy and able to withstand that weight, to give not just life, but eternal life, not just purpose, but eternal purposes, not just a way to live. But the only true way to live. Worship starts with God. It's not about having other idols that really matter most and then fitting God into the cracks, fitting Him in on the side. It's not merely about saying that God is the most important thing to you, but then living as if th- something else is on the throne. It's about knowing that God is at the center of everything and giving him his proper honor as creator, sustainer, and savior through his gospel. Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7 says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. We all have something that is most precious to us. That's not an option. It's a fact of human existence. There is always going to be one thing that matters more than all other things. And that will be what we worship. Our, Our need is to worship God for who he is and for all that he is. Second commandment. Exodus 20 verses 4 to 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The second commandment gets at the manner of our worship. While the first commandment gets at who we worship, the second commandment gets at how we worship. In his commentary on the book of Exodus, Philip Ryken, who is the current president at Wheaton College, shows a distinction between the first and second commandments. The first commandment has to do with worshiping the right God, The second commandment has to do with worshiping the right God in the right way. Or he also adds that the first commandment forbids us worshiping false gods. The second commandment forbids us from worshiping the true God falsely. How we worship is as important as who we worship. First and foremost, the second commandment teaches against making images of God and worshiping those images. In the ancient world, idol worship was a common practice. And today, in many parts of the world, and in many religious traditions, it's still a common practice. The second commandment is about worshiping a God in a way that we have fashioned. And it forbids that. Yet we do it all the time. Because with the law of God, it's not just a matter of what we do outwardly, But there's also a spiritual aspect to what we do inwardly and what we believe. Sure, we might not be making idols of stone or wood and bowing down to those things, but that does not mean that idolatry is a non-issue for us. Because we can just as easily create caricatures of God's character and worship that instead of worshiping the Lord for who he truly is. If we, in any way, undermine the righteousness and the holiness of God, then we are not worshiping him for who he really is. We're worshiping something less than God, which is not God. When we choose to ignore God's wrath towards sin, we are attempting to rob God of his justice and are, in fact, supplanting that with our own contrived notion of justice, where we pick and choose what sins matter. We are putting ourselves on the throne to judge what is and isn't good and righteous and just. When we believe that there is another way to the Lord except through the saving work of Christ, then we no longer believe in a gospel of grace that was purchased on the cross. We believe instead in a gospel where either God does not take sin seriously or in a false gospel that is based on our own works. When we disregard what God has said in his word or find ways to explain it away, we're putting our own wisdom over the wisdom of God. We we recreate the first sin. We doubt that God is true to his word. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. When we make the church and worship revolve around our preferences and our desires, we are creating a God in our own image. We're not appealing to the character of God, but to the whims of the world. God will not compromise his holiness and glory. God is not approached in any way we choose. He's not approached on our terms. Again, I remind us of where we are in the book of Exodus. Exodus 20, God had miraculously freed the Israelites from the mightiest empire the world had ever seen at that time, the Egyptians. God brings the Israelites to Mount Sinai where he gives the Ten Commandments. After the giving of the Ten Commandments, Moses is back on the mountain, receiving further instructions from the Lord. Exodus chapter 24 tells us that Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights after the giving of the Ten Commandments. And it is during those 40 days and 40 nights, such a short time later, that the people would fall back into sin and idolatry. They violate this second commandment. Exodus chapter 32, the golden calf. Exodus 32, one says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As to this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Moses is on the mountain and the people get impatient. And they want to take matters into their own hands. Aaron, the brother of Moses, is the priest, and he bends to the pressure of the people and their impatience. Exodus 32, verses 2 to 4. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They literally make an image to worship, an idol to worship. They give it the credit for redeeming them from Israel. Now certainly, this is obviously an explicit violation of the second commandment. But I think the other sin that we can miss in this text is that the people resort to worshiping God in their own way and on their own terms. The people say, up, make us gods who shall go before us. Worship is not about what we want. And this is the trap that the consumer model of the church falls into. Because it so often loses sight of making disciples and faithfully handling the gospel and instead seeks to get numbers. It doesn't matter if you have a church of 10,000 people if you're not preaching the gospel. And I think as a society, we can fall into the trap of thinking that anywhere a person goes, so long as it's called a church, is good. Not if it's not based around the word of God and preaching the gospel. How we do worship influences our theology of how we do everything else and what we believe. And when the church worships God in the wrong way, it is saying that we do not need to take God seriously and that we do not need to take his word seriously. Third commandment, Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The name of God in the Bible there's various words that are used in the Greek and Hebrew. And they're statements about his character. For instance, in Exodus chapter 3, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses asks God for his name, God says in Exodus 3:14, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel: I am has sent me to you. Think about that name. I am. God simply associates the verb for being with his name. He simply is. The third commandment, again, gets at our attitude of worship. That the name of the Lord itself is sacred. And so when the Lord says to Moses, I am, he is pure existence. God is not becoming anything. He already is everything that he can be. He is. He's not dependent on anything. He is. We're to honor God's name. In Leviticus chapter 24, we see a story of two men. Two men within the Israelite camp who get into a fight. One of them blasphemes the name of the Lord. And the Lord gives instructions to Moses in Leviticus 24, 14 to 16. And it says, bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. And that passage, blasphemy, is treated as a capital offense. Certainly our reaction might be to look at that and think that that's a pretty extreme penalty. Or maybe even feel tempted to judge God or judge the Bible for teaching such a thing. First, I think that attitude reveals the rebellion in our own hearts. And second, it is pointing us to the holiness of the name of God. It's treating the name of God with reverence. We are meant to all the more treat the character of God with awe and reverence. Because the names of God point us to the uniqueness and holiness of God. We can never use the name of God as though it's disconnected with the power and character of God. And the reason why his name is so sacred is because of who God is. Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9 Jesus says, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. People can talk the talk, but they're not walking the walk. Having reverence for God in our words, but not in our lives, does us no good. Because the reverence needs to come from an understanding of who God is when we say the name of God, pray to God, think about God, then it needs to be in a way that honors God. And it matters that worship reflect that attitude. Our theology of worship impacts our theology of everything else. We have a holy God who we need to praise and honor appropriately because he is good. If you've ever heard a person talk about meeting the Queen of England. It's quite the spectacle. Before even meeting her, you're prepped on the proper protocol. There are appropriate forms of address. You don't just say, hey Liz, can I wear your crown? You address her formally as things like your majesty. You're never supposed to walk in front of her. If you're having a meal, you're never supposed to take the first bite before she's taken her first bite. You're never supposed to exit a room that she's in. You're never supposed to turn your back to her. And we could go on and on. There is reverence for the Queen. And she's not even our Queen. We're not her subjects. We fought a war. Yet, if you were invited to Buckingham Palace and accepted the invitation, it would be expected that you would follow these protocols. There is reverence for the Queen. And we are most certainly supposed to have reverence for the king of the universe. In Leviticus 9, the tabernacle is constructed and there's a a service to consecrate the tabernacle, which, again, the tabernacle, it was a, a tent structure. It served as God's presence with his people during their desert wanderings. It was the place that represented God's presence with his people. It was a sacred and holy place. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is a picture of appropriate worship as God has prescribed and ordained. The chapter ends by saying the people fell on their faces. They had come to God in reverence. But in the next chapter, Leviticus 10, looks at a scene with worship that does not honor God. The very next verses, these are the two closing verses of chapter 9, goes right into chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord, and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, followed this up by worshiping, by offering unauthorized fire and worship before the Lord, when they had not been commanded to, and God kills them. Once again, that can be tempting to think that that's just overly harsh. But it was God who had brought the judgment on them. And God is all just. Dishonoring the Lord in worship matters. And every Sunday, all over the country and all over the world, there are churches who dishonor God, who worship Him in unbiblical ways, who preach cheap grace rather than the gospel. Who resort to pandering to the masses and telling people what they want rather than what they need? I bring up what so many churches in our culture do because it matters that we always guard the purity and faithfulness of our own worship. It matters that we never fall into the, succumb to the temptation to drift. Yes, it's often mega churches that are associated. With these types of worship, churches that meet in big arenas. They're the place where our minds often go. But the big churches oftentimes have a lot of influence over smaller churches who end up copying what they do. Fourth commandment. Exodus 20 beginning verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The fourth commandment gets at our time. Of worship. We're to have a day set aside for God. The command says that we should remember God's Sabbath, that we should keep it holy and not work on that day. And the rationale is that it points back to creation, when God ceased from his own creative activity. God created time and is sovereign over time. And keeping the Sabbath is also an act of faith. Because rest is a challenge for many of us. Especially here in a farming community. We're hardworking people. And hard work is good. But there can be a temptation to neglect rest. I've certainly been guilty of this. Honoring the Lord's day is an act of faith. Because it's a matter of trusting Trusting the Lord that our work that we've done on the other six days is enough. The Lord's day is a day set aside for God. It's not a day for us to pursue our own goals and accomplishments, but to worship the Lord. The fact that the Lord has us set aside a day for worship is also a reminder of the importance of community within the church. Because faith is not just personal. It's not just what we do on our own. But he's given us a day, one in seven, to come together as his people and to praise and worship him together. In the New Testament era, with the risen Lord, Sunday is the Lord's day. And that's a practice that goes back to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, proper observance of the Sabbath was associated with the holiness and fidelity of Israel. Isaiah chapter 56, 1 and 2 says, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. In the book of Ezekiel, before the Israelites are sent into exile, the prophet points to their failure to properly keep the Lord's Sabbath as a significant example of their rebellion and lack of faith in God. Time matters. Every Sunday is the chance to come together and to celebrate the risen Lord. It's interesting, as we're planning for Easter, we make such a big deal about Easter. For some people, that's just about the only time they come to church. But there's not supposed to be one special Sunday in a year to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. We're supposed to have one special day every week where we celebrate the risen Lord who has brought eternal life to all who believe in him. Every Sunday, is an opportunity to remember that the tomb was empty. Every Sunday is an opportunity to know that the cross was not the end and that there is life, and eternal life. But sadly, our view of a day of rest, our view of worship, are oftentimes looked down upon as punishments. Worship of God is viewed as a punishment instead of as an opportunity to come before the living God and praise him. It's not the way it's supposed to be. In the Bible, when people encounter God, there are different responses that they give. But one of them is never boredom. When we have a low view of the place of worship or fall into the trap of thinking that we need to add to worship to make it more fun or interesting. When we do that, we reveal what we think about God. God does not need a garnish. He is the eternal God of creation. Because our theology of worship influences our theology of everything else, may we also be a church that comes together and that worships the Lord on his terms. does it with faithful reverence and love for the Lord and obedience to his word. And in that, you will be blessed. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are a good God. Lord, may we humbly come before you. Lord, there are so many competing views in our culture and people in our society who want to just profane your name and rob you of your glory and holiness and approach you in any way. Lord, you are holy. And may we never forget that. In Jesus' name, amen.